This is Cinema Activist, the official podcast of Lion's Den Productions, for filmmakers and cinephiles who crave context. All right, everyone, thank you for joining us. This is Cinema Activist, and I have a special guest today. I have Dr. Rhonda Matthews, uh, and we are going to dive into the new film, Master, which is available on Amazon Prime. Uh, Dr. Matthews is a university professor in sociology and politics, and she's been in higher ed uh, since 1992. How are you, Dr. Matthews? Feeling old? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. I guess maybe to start, you know, you were telling me that you've experienced a number of climates and cultures in Mm -hmm. higher ed and just education in general. Do you want to talk about some of those uh, as kind of a get to know you and, and learn where you approach this film from, from your experience? Well, So I have been working in education in some capacity for, well, let's see, since 19, what, 80, probably since 1986, I think. Mm -hmm. So I started off working uh, at uh, high schools for mathematics and science. I worked at two in their inaugural year. And for anybody who doesn't know, Um, these schools are basically boarding schools, state boarding schools for selected, gifted and talented students in a state. And not every state has one. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were, I think at the time that I started working at the one in Mississippi, that one was at that point, the 11th, I think in the nation. And so what they do is they they recruit students from all over the state in 10th, 11th or 12th grade. It depends on the school. Most schools, most of the high schools are only 11th and 12th grade. Um, And then students who are accepted come to the university because it's it's uh, the, the school is usually located on a university campus. There's a residence hall that's set aside for the students. There's classroom space that's set aside for the students. And it's all funded. They're, they're um, enhanced, uh, advanced uh, curriculum is um, supported by the state. The whole school is supported by the state. So I started working with the first one in Mississippi in the late 80s, and then I moved on to the one in Oklahoma, uh, and I was there for their inaugural year, too, and I think by then there were 13, uh, and I worked there. Uh, both of those, first as the residence hall director for the girls, and then at uh, the Oklahoma school, I was the dean of students, and then decided to get my PhD. So I moved down the road to uh, University of Oklahoma, started working on my PhD. And while I was there, I worked in residence life. So I worked as an administrator in residence life, but I also taught. I was a graduate assistant and then, I mean, I'm sorry, a teaching assistant. And then I just started teaching as an adjunct until I completed my degree. What areas, subjects were you teaching back in those early days? I'm just curious. Sociology. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's what my PhD is in. It's in sociology. Uh, And so 
and so I have, you know, specialty areas in, in the intersections, right? Uh, race and identity, gender, uh, sexual orientation, sexuality. But I also have some kind of, you know, ones that most people don't associate with, um, especially with uh, Black sociologists, right? I, I focused on theory, so social theory, which is, a, you know, that's definitely an egghead. Uh, topic, <laughs> but I, I kind of love theory and um, uh, organizations and organizational structure. So, you know, I kind of have a, um, a kind of a well-rounded, um, I kind of have a well-rounded subject matter perspective. Yeah. But I also then later I started uh, working a lot of popular culture, popular culture theory into my classes as well. So, which was perfect. And this is what be was before anybody else was doing that, right? So I started doing this work and of course people respond well to it. Um, so, so, you know, so I've taught at a large, very large public four-year institution, you know, University of Oklahoma, but I've also taught at community colleges, um, University of Oklahoma is predominantly white, um, but when we moved to San Francisco, I started teaching at San Francisco State, which is also a four-year public institution, which is pretty large, but it's kind of different because the the most of the students are commuter students. They don't live on campus, and you know San Francisco is extraordinarily diverse. Mm. So, so the the diversity of the people that I was teaching expanded, and I was teaching in a city now. Uh, so, you know, I've kind of taught kind of all over. I've taught at a, a small private college mm -hmm. uh, before we went to San Francisco. I almost, almost, almost I <laughs> uh, went to Dartmouth. Um, I, my, my spouse and I had, when, before we got married, we went into the job market and we, we both got job offers at the same time. And his was at San Francisco State and mine was at Dartmouth. And so we had to figure <laughs> out what, you know, what are we going to do? And, you know, San Francisco, Hanover, New Hampshire. I mean. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so we so we we wound up in San Francisco, but then we came here again for another job. Um, my spouse was hired at Allegheny College. Pretty soon, I started working there, um, and after a few years, a tenure track position opened at uh, Edinburgh, you know, right up the road, and so that's that's where I landed. So you've dealt with uh, bureaucracy in all all types and shapes Ooh. and forms. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. In in so many different, you know, areas of, of the institutions. And most people don't have those kinds of experiences. I, I recognize that. I mean, at one point I was thinking, well, you know, why don't you know X, Y, and Z? But that but most people don't get to work in mm -hmm. various areas of the university, like I have had an opportunity to do. It's been really valuable to um to my, I think, to my work skills and the ways in which I kind of move through uh, educational institutions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and it's definitely going to be insightful for talking about this film, Master. Absolutely, for sure. It was Absolutely. kind of tailor made for uh, for you, Rhonda. It really is. It, I, I was thinking that as I was watching the film. I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So let me, uh, I'll, I'll do the synopsis and okay. uh, just a little information up front. 
and then we'll dive into it. So Master is written and directed by American filmmaker Mariama Diallo. This was her first feature film. It made the Sundance Film Festival this year, 2022, and was released again through Amazon Prime. You can watch this uh, on Amazon. It's been there since March. So this is the story of three women uh, who strive to find their place at an elite Northeastern university. When anonymous racist attacks target a black freshman who insists she is being haunted by ghosts, each woman must determine where the real menace lies. This stars uh, Regina Hall as the lead. Um, She plays the first black master, Gail, at this university. We also follow incoming freshman Jasmine, who's played by Zoe Renee. And also the story of a professor, um, Liv, who is played by uh, Amber Gary. Couple things up front in the director's own words. She said, um, so the film was written and directed by Mariama. And she said that the college, the institution itself, she wrote as the antagonist of the story. And I was telling Rhonda before we started, this idea sparked in her mind because she had a master, which was a male at the college that she attended. And she came across him um, years afterwards and referred to him as master. And she said that there was a little uh, discomfort for both of them some years removed after graduation. And she said that her happy memories of college, that then upon reflection, she recognized that there was an undercurrent of isolation and alienation that was mm-hmm. kind of bleeding through and, um, you know, kind of drove her to uh, to explore this and write this story. So... Anything that I missed there that you think was was important from the synopsis or anything uh, that you saw background wise, just from from creation of the story, origins of the story? I I have to say that the first thing that I thought about, you know, even before when I first saw the trailer, that that it was clear to me that the language was important, right, that that the title of it is master and that that was Gail's title, right? Mm. Which is anachronistic, right? Like that is out of time. Yeah. What? Master, like there was nobody sitting in a meeting who was like, yo, maybe we should not call it that anymore. I mean, it was, and then, and then, you know, kind of the juxtaposition of that, that word and all that it holds you know, all the weight that it holds structurally and historically and culturally, um, all resting on the shoulders of a black woman at a predominantly elite, white, rich school. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, the the title gives us it gives us the idea that mm-hmm. the expectation that that all the tension that lies just within the the character Gail's body uh, is going to to be part of the film and and so for me that was the thing that was most provocative about it and and I really it, you know I I didn't watch it until we had talked about <laughs> doing this episode of the podcast because I really thought I was going to be triggered. I did. Um, When I saw 
the trailer, I thought, oh, shit, this is, you know, I'm going to have to, you know, do some yoga and drink <laughs> before yeah. I watch this film. I really thought just because of the trailer, I thought that all of the inherent stuff mm -hmm. that uh, that lies um, just in the title was going to be there. So. Let yeah. me, because um, I just recently recorded an episode uh, talking about trans portrayal in mm -hmm. in media, mm -hmm. and um, this has me thinking a, a little bit about that conversation because I I said in that situation one of the first films that I saw, um, you know, as a as a straight white male in my experience with trans characters was Boys Don't Cry. Mm -hmm. and how that had a very strong effect on me. And mm -hmm. our guest for that episode, uh, Dr. Tyler Titus, said, you know, that they would never recommend probably that film to a trans person to watch because it is, it's terrible. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it will bring up a lot of things um, mm -hmm. that will make the viewer uncomfortable. And I had said, yeah, I totally understand that. From my perspective, if that film hadn't existed, I probably would be missing some development in myself and some mm -hmm. empathy and some mm -hmm. understanding. So I'm wondering, you know, with race horror, and I know that we've talked about, for example, I, I had recommended to you, you know, naively, like there's a series called Them, which is on Amazon. And I, mm -hmm. I had said, hey, have, have you seen this? And and I think you had mentioned at that point that 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 show would take a lot, uh, you know, for you to to watch. And mm -hmm. yeah, I think that that's something, uh, you know, I'm I'm always learning. And I think, you know, how do you see kind of. I guess the dichotomy of like we need these stories, but also these stories are very painful for a, a big part of the population. Yeah, I I think that different types of media aimed at different audiences uh, are necessary. I do. So so let's go to let's go to Boys Don't Cry. Boys Don't Cry is is constructed in the straight gaze. It's constructed for the straight gays, right? Um, as far if I'm remembering correctly, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't want to say because I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna be wrong about this, but I don't know that they had people who are trans as uh, consultants on the film, and even if they did mm -hmm. at that time, there was no way that that straight white male Hollywood was going to hire a trans actor to do to do that role. Right. I think that the that the reason that you were able to see it and that it was in that it affected you the way that it did was because it was written for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that people knew. I'm not even sure that, that people who wrote it and had anything to do with the production of it knew that that's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, but as you said, if you hadn't seen it, then what would you know? 
you wouldn't know anything. And so this is this is the incremental, this is incrementalism, I think, in representation in, in video and film, right? Is that um, because we live in a society that is predicated on oppression, right? That when we start seeing representation of people at the beginning, it's not the best representation. It's often constructed in the, the, the gaze of the oppressor. It almost mm -hmm. always is, right? Now, sometimes those images are good, but that usually only comes after the initial portrayals, right? Because after the initial portrayals, people can say, you know, that was good. And I'm glad you have some empathy for uh, Matthew Shepard and people who go through the same kinds of crime, you know, people who, you know, who have crimes committed against their body and their person. But now why don't we think about what this means for people who are actually trans, right? So it's a progression. Now, I, you know, I'm not one of these people who says, who's like, you know, go slow. But I do recognize that, that until, until the making of art is placed in the hands of, um, of various different people so that they can make art from their perspective, that mainstream media um, franchises are often not the first places that we go for the most thorough, well, you know, sure. fully fleshed out portrayals. It's just not. So I'm not going to put down Boys Don't Cry because it's not because I know I know you're saying that, that you're not saying that that's what Tyler was doing. But right. but I don't I try not to put down portrayals like that because I know what they meant. Mm -hmm. I know that they meant well and I have to place it in its time. Now, if we were talking about minstrelsy of some sort, Okay, well, then we can talk about putting it down, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, it's clear that that's about dehumanization, right? right. And when I say minstrelsy, I, say, I mean minstrelsy of any kind. Um, there have been many portrayals, for example, uh, of trans people that are minstrelsy, right? Where they are depicted as clowns or mm -hmm. murderers or sick in some way, right? Just as there has been with every, um, every other uh, uh, yeah. oppressed group. So, you know, so every piece of media is not necessarily for every audience, mm -hmm. right? And, and I recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of us that, uh, you know, have lived more privileged uh, lifestyles, maybe we need a little bit of a sledgehammer over the head approach, right? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, because, uh, the, you know, the system... The entire system has been designed um, to keep white people from knowing. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, you know, when people say, you know, well, this system is oppressive against, you know, insert group here. They're absolutely right. But more than that, more than just um, keeping this group oppressed, in order to keep this group oppressed, We've got to keep actual information and reality away from people who can help us continue their oppression, right? And so, and so that is, I think that is why media that are aimed at truth telling really are dangerous, right? Because you can blab at people all day 
and they'll never get it. But if mm-hmm. you sit them in a theater, you know, yeah. with a you know with a you know a, a, a building size screen, you know, and a great sound system, and you present those images, well, that be, then it's a whole different ball game, right? Yeah, yeah so total I, total control. Oh my God, it's it's <laughs> it's a much more dangerous prospect to the powers that be, I think, than any than anything I could do standing up in front of a classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very powerful tool mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Which which I think is so bringing us back to Master. So this is a a, a black woman who wrote and directed the film. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we definitely. You know, it's not one of those situations where, um, you know, we have the a white person coming in as the protagonist and we're showing things from their point of view. Right. Mm-hmm. We have we have the freshman um, who, who's coming in, Jasmine. But really, it's it's written from Gail's perspective, mm-hmm. I would say. Right. Overall, mm-hmm. the story is is from from the master, from mm-hmm. Regina Hall's point of view. And then I, the director has said as well is she she feels like Gail is kind of her lens looking at her younger self, which would be the Jasmine character mm-hmm. and kind of um, reflecting on, on her younger experience and, and kind mm-hmm. of, yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, I don't know if we want to get into overall impressions of the film, but for me, I, I, I think uh, I like the film a little better than you. Um yeah. I thought it spoke well to kind of skewering the complexities and the contradictions um, of society today. And it was about horror that's baked into everyday mm-hmm. existence, especially mm-hmm. in, you know, a higher education uh, elite um, mm-hmm. environment. What were kind of your general impressions of the film? And then we'll jump into some specifics. Okay. So I thought it was okay. Uh, I, th- <laughs> I did. I thought it was okay. So we were talking about this before, you know, we started recording and, and um, I really thought from the, the, when I saw the trailer for the first time, I really thought I was going to be triggered. It, you know, it took me a while. I, you know, I probably wouldn't have watched this un- unless uh, I wouldn't, un- I, w- I don't think I would have watched it. I think I would have waited until summer when I wasn't really doing a whole lot of other things to watch this if we hadn't talked about talking about it, you know, on the podcast. So so I thought I was going to be triggered. The trailer, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, this is everything that I have had to deal with over all these years. But then I saw it and I was like, OK, no, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I recognized what she was doing. But it didn't have it didn't have the sense of horror that those experiences actually invoke in me on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Right. And I say invoke because, yes, it's present tense. It's been past tense, too. But it's part and parcel of my entire um, existence in higher education. And, uh, you know, I've already talked about the different types of settings in which uh, I have been in higher education. So when I say that it, this is part, that that horror is part and parcel of my entire existence in higher education, I absolutely positively mean it. Wow. Right. So, so, so it didn't do that for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, Partially, I think it didn't do that for me because 
because Gail is, we don't see her life as much at work external to the classroom. We do see it, of course, Mm -hmm. but we don't we don't get enough of the horror, I think. And I don't know that a person who has never done that work can actually can accurately portray it Uh on film. I just I don't I don't know that that's the case. I did not know that, though, before I saw the film. But now that I've seen it, I'm thinking, "Mm, I don't maybe it it takes someone who has done it, who's been steeped in it to make it kind of come to life as horror on the film. Now, I will say, I think she got the student part right. Okay. I do think that she got that right. Um, Now, she's she's lived the student experience. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things I think that well, one of the things that struck me about Um, about Gail, I'm I'm sorry, about Jasmine. And she has experienced through the film a lot of the anxiety and horror that Black students feel at predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. And that I did not feel as an undergraduate because I went to an HBCU, Mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, where my intelligence was never fucking in doubt, right? If I walked into a classroom and I didn't have something done, it wasn't, oh, you poor, you know, mm-hmm. underprivileged, you know, the assumption that I was a poor, underprivileged mm-hmm. kid, blah, blah, blah. It was, what are you doing? You, you Don't come in my classroom unprepared. What, you know, I mean, the expectation, nobody was Nobody was shocked by my brilliance. Nobody was shocked Mm -hmm. that I was a great writer. Nobody was shocked at the good things that I did as a student. Nobody was shocked about the ways in which I thought never, because we were all expected to be that. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody, every professor that we had knew uh, what we were capable of. And if some of us were not as good as others, then the expectation was that those of you who are better at such and such a thing, you're going to help your your uh, your classmates, you know, members of your cohort. And then all of you are going to come into my classroom and, and excel. Right. Mm-hmm. So I never had that. But as a professor, I watched this very thing that happens to Jasmine happen to black and brown students at predominantly white institutions. Uh-huh. You know, I I have uh, I have seen that. And so that part I locked on to because I've, that's that's an experience mm-hmm. that is always fresh and new. And when I say always fresh and new, I mean, every semester, on, <laughs> right? every semester that I have a black or brown student in a class or a poor white student in a class. Mm-hmm. Right. I see the effects of that kind of um, oppressive structure that mm-hmm. that maybe other professors have with with those students. So I think I think she kind of nailed that part. OK, um, I do the the anxiety, the the class kind of class dynamics. A little yeah, bit. the class dynamic, you know, the unwillingness to say anything in the face of obvious mistreatment because you know you're there you just want to fit in that scene where she is um she's she stays for thanksgiving right. and she's sitting down there by herself and then there's the the voiceover of the 
the message that she leaves for her mom, you know, I'm mm -hmm. here, I'm going with, I'm going with, with a her friend friends. And, yeah. You know, all of that, you know, mm -hmm. so, so I have to succeed because everybody at home is expecting me to succeed at this yeah. place. So, uh, the, yeah, the extra, the, extra layers of, yeah, of pressure and stress that are um, put on, yeah. put on someone, right? She and, nails that. Mm -hmm. She nails it. Mm -hmm. She does. So that part I liked a lot. Referring back to, you know, what we were talking about before about intended audience, who do you, I mean, I know neither of us are obviously in the head or know the, the film, the writer, director, um, but do you feel, you know, because you've, you've lived all of the inner workings and the bureaucracy and, and everything from, from that angle, you know, that life, who do you think the intended audience is? is for this film do you think it is someone like me do you think it is like you know those kind of neoliberals that are always like culturally you know like signaling you know what do you what do you think um is a is a great audience who do you think is is being skewered here and who do you think is the intended audience for this film or who should see this film well think? Okay, so let me start with who I think is being skewed. I mean, clearly it's 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 higher education, you know, cl clearly <laughs> it's higher education. And it is um, it is predominant in this instance, it's predominantly white institutions, especially those that are so-called elite institutions. I'm, I, that's pretty clear that that's who who she's going after here. Um, but I think sure about who the audience is mm -hmm. because my guess is that if we're saying if she's if she's trying to aim this messaging at people who work in higher in, in higher education you know i mean i've been in rooms with those people they're gonna just you know eh, that's not really what's and, and what they're going to do is assume that that the white administrative characters are caricatures uh, uh -huh. <laughs> they're not caricatures right and i would like to say that maybe she's aiming it at undergraduate students as a cautionary mm -hmm. tale mm -hmm. but is she i mean I, yeah i don't no, if 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 she's trying to aim it at people who don't really have any um, any experience with uh, higher education, kind of writ large, or with uh, predominantly white higher education inst educational institutions, then then what this movie is is a confirmation of the stereotypes that people already hold about it. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, I'm not really sure it maybe she's aiming it at black folks, you mm. know, um, whether we have entered these institutions or not. But. Well, maybe, so maybe it could be confirmation a, of the things we already know. Uh huh. Or as like a warning, maybe it. Yeah. Like you were saying, maybe it's for kind of, uh, you know, generation z or zoomers you know maybe it's kind yeah. of like a warning right i i thought maybe that it's kind of striking back against liberals <laughs> you know liberals and um you know or virtue signaling and people yeah. who you know like hashtag activism and you know kind of skewering these structures that we've kind of 
you know, for decades told ourselves our our ways, you know, for better society and to better one another and, yeah. you know, and things like that. But that we can't really that racism is still in the shadows of all of these. It's still very much present as ghosts haunting and repeating us in different forms over and over again. And until we can confront, uh, you know, a lot of these central issues, we just keep putting more and more paint over the situation and not really changing anything. Well, yeah. Um, in the institution, in I'd the say institution. all that, hmm. but in the institution, because because a lot of what the characters do is they provide for us discussions about their personal perspectives, but they do nothing to change institutional structures, like nothing whatsoever. And, and, and maybe that's the larger message, right? That, that, that you can talk about what you individually are going to do in an anti-racist stance. But until you change what happens at the institutions and, and how this stuff is expressed through institutions, then you're still going to be hurting people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. The rot yeah. underneath, right, is, is still there. And it's yeah. Still, mm-hmm. it's, and, yeah. And the, 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 the theme of rotting comes through a couple times with the you know the moth and the maggots first hidden in the drawer and then coming out of uh you know she becomes a representation of the rotting institution mm-hmm. when the maggots come out of her mouth in the painting you know so uh, so i really think it is about the ways in which um higher education is rotten in its core mm-hmm. uh and that you know until that's addressed yeah. we're never we're when never going to change but there are parts in it that they just kind of they 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 address and i mean they do it and then they just drop it and i kept waiting on them to go back like go the, deeper yeah the 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 cafeteria woman right there is not a black person <laughs> in this country not a professional black person in this country who has not experienced that thing right there right where the there is a a black person usually in a position of service but maybe not always who is just fawning all over the white people right oh my god baby blah 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 oh and you're not and and then you come up and right wow and i was waiting on what is that Rhonda? what is this what is I that? Thought she, I thought she was going to be a monster, uh-huh. right? I, I just, but no, they just kind of, they just dropped uh-huh. it. Same thing with the maggots. They just, you know, you see them a couple of times, oh, and then they dropped it. And also, even the response I thought was a little overblown, because I was like, you just do it. Call the exterminator, like in, the real, <laughs> in your real life. You wouldn't respond like that. In real yeah. life, you'd be like, oh, my God, you know, and call the nearest exterm. Could you guys get out here in the morning? <laughs> right. You know, and so. so I get are- the critique. I get I get that. I totally yeah. get that. You wanted to see. And, you know, there were there were a couple scenes where they would have those administrator dinners or like yeah. everybody would kind of be gathering and, and you would have some stuff. And if, for me, there was some really nice kind of awkward Mm-hmm. you know, dialogues and, and things like that, um, mm-hmm. because 
you know, everyone's speaking from a point of diversity and inclusion and things like right. that, but it all feels kind of hollow, right? It, it all does. rings mm-hmm. rings a little mm-hmm. hollow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, we haven't actualized. I mean, I don't want to sound super negative, but we haven't really made us. I don't know. Maybe you disagree, but it feels like a lot of this we haven't actualized execution in real life, like you said, to bringing about any serious change in these structures and institutions. Oh no. We're better at recognizing it. Like we'll, we'll we know how to signal, right. And we know what kind of words are like the buzzwords of the, of the time. Right. Things like that to make ourselves seem, you know, we, when we do advertisements for our university, we want to make sure that we get images in there in all the pictures. Like we know what we need to do to kind of like, Mm -hmm signal and put the messaging out there but what are we really doing right like <laughs> man that ad wow oh, just oh, oh yeah. my god right. oh my god that, <laughs> was that ad was i was cracking up i mean oh my t- me too i was like <laughs> oh my god this is it like they went and just looked at all the commercials that universities put out and all they did well yep take this here and this here. and they just cop i mean it was perfect yeah Perfect. We're going to fix this with just some diversity events, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> the five diverse bodies on campus <laughs> are all in. <laughs> what well, you know, what's weird about it, too. It's not weird. This is what happens is that there are a number of students that this is we, we have research that bears this out, right? Like, like those things work. Those kinds of campaigns work. Mm-hmm. And so then. You know, so students apply, students and their parents apply, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to go here because there is a student population. I'll be safe. Kids or students are thinking I'll be safe here. And right. parents are thinking my 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 student will be safe there. And then they get there and they're like, well, where are the, all the yeah. here? What right. in the commercials or on the websites? Y'all said that there was some people of color here and there are none. Right. right. And so and then the horror begins. Mm-hmm. Right. So so I feel like uh, there are many ways that she could have kind of brought that about. I think she just skimmed the surface. And I and and perhaps if she had focused more on the student experience, I think we would have seen more horror uh, yeah. depicted you know, in the film. But as it was, I think it's difficult it, because because it's difficult to to do it from the perspective of um, the administrator because unless you've actually done that, I mean, students don't know what we do uh, day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they know that we step into a classroom and they know that we advise and you know sometimes they see us after class. You know, when we're doing presentations and stuff, but they don't unless we talk to them about that, which most of us don't do. They don't know what right. it is that we go through every day. Also, you're not going to go around telling students about the trauma that you face every day, you know, from microaggressions and, you know, administrators, you know, who are, are judging you not based on your work, but, you know, saying, well, you know, you're just like every other of the five black professors that we have here. No, the fuck I'm not. Right. right. You know? It's and so, so unprofessional. Right? Yeah, well, but, but I mean, nobody says it. Well, nobody's ever said it like that to me. But they say it. Right. And, and, you know, and I know that they that that they have people have those kinds of conversations. And I'm not sure that the director could have adequately pulled that off. 
I think it requires somebody who sits in those seats day in and day out to talk about that, Mm -hmm. to bring it to life. Yeah, maybe, um, you know, not to, I mean, we can critique the film, but uh, maybe instead of having three women as the focus, maybe, you know, really zeroing in on one of their stories and really doing a deep dive may have. Mm-hmm. may have been more rewarding yeah it does feel like a bit of a you know probably especially for you like a surface kind of an introductory course if you will yeah onto the institution yeah. of higher education and race it, it is it is but I, but i do see where she was trying to go so like um so um liv's character Oh, Man, yeah, we haven't talked about we haven't talked about liv talk about i liv. clocked her <laughs> <laughs> I knew who she was going to be from the very, from that first scene, right? When, when, and okay, I'm not saying that you can't, you can, you can take uh, the Scarlet Letter and you can analyze it from a racially coded perspective, but that's the end, right? (laughs) That is, man, if you wanted to, that yeah. shit is thin, right? Yeah. And so, and that's what Jasmine was saying. What? Right. There's no blah, blah, blah. But then she talks to the the young white woman about it. And the, you know, she was like, well, I got an A. And she's like, and, and basically she was like, well, how the fuck did you get an A? Because, and what the woman's, and what she said was, yeah. Um, and here's some of that, you know, pseudo liberal stuff. And right, she just, I threw some stuff in there about, you know, indigenous people and African American, and she buzzwords, right? right. And so, the, and so Jasmine is like, well, what the, that's not, what? You know, you yeah. gained this, I wrote a really good analytical paper and you bullshitted. Right. I got the F, you got, the, but, but, but what they were trying to, what she was trying to do is um, exhibit kind of the horror, the, ins- the insidiousness of the horror of identity here and, mm-hmm. and how it is that identity can be, um, can be commodified right. once again by white people, right? Yep. So, so Ivy, uh, I'm sorry, so Liv comes in and she's, she, students love her. Yeah, they love her. Right. But she's not doing uh, there clearly are are uh, standards for publishing. There are clearly other standards that you have to fulfill to get tenure. Mm-hmm. But it's OK because she's black. Right. right? And, still <laughs> right. Thicker. and so we're just going to kind of, you know, we're going to we're going to right push the push the standards aside which is which is a, a form of horror right for people like uh gail who who did do all of the things that she was supposed to do mm-hmm. in order to get tenure right and then they were trying to pull her in you know to their to their bullshit you know right. which which is you know you need to you know don't you need to support her because she's black well right. yes she's black but is she doing her work right and and that is about individual work rather than institutional change, right? Because in the real world, what we are and and let me say this, I have been a part of that, right? I have seen that. Um, I have seen institutions do that to people, uh, and rather than and so my my response is always, you're just going to let the person flounder. Aren't they supposed to have a mentor to help mm-hmm. them walk through this process? Because everybody's supposed to have a mentor 
to walk them through this process, right? They're not supposed to do it alone so that when it comes time for tenure or when it comes time for promotion, that person is prepared, right? They haven't been out there isolated on their own. So the isolation that a lot of administrators and um, faculty of color feel is not because they isolate themselves, it's because institutional structures isolate them. Uh-huh. And that's horrifying, wow. right? You so you're just like placed like, in an identity box. Right. And it's like right. a it's like a curse in a in a way, right? I, I have seen it. I have I have witnessed people's horror at it's time for me to go up for tenure and I, I don't know what to do. Wow. Well, what do you mean? You don't know what to do. Hasn't somebody been coaching you this whole time? Hasn't somebody been walking you through this process this whole time? It's been years. And when I say years, it's literally been years. Hasn't somebody been helping you with this? No. Oh, that's right? awful. So now, because this is, scary. I've done this a few times. I've helped people mm-hmm. at other institutions, right? Who were left out there to dangle. And then when it comes time to go up for tenure, they don't know how to construct their packet. They don't know how to write their narrative. None of that stuff. That is an institutionalism, yeah. not an individualism. But what the movie was doing was talking about, it was giving us this, this tension between people's institutional, I'm, I'm sorry, people's individual behaviors and the role of the institution in the work that they do. And so for a lot of people, that's the horror. Mm-hmm. But she, she has a hard time doing that. And I, I just think it's because she's not worked in those areas. Right. Yeah. Understood. And what mm-hmm. what did you think, Rhonda, about the that witch painting? <laughs> there's there's like this painting that's up, yeah. and I I, I, I mean didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't understand it either. They were extremely like light skinned, um, and that's the person that they chose. I don't know if that's just a statement in and of itself. Like this is the person that we're going to frame, and like you know, put up in the hall is like the lightest skinned uh, person we can possibly find. I... At the end, when we figure out that um, that Liv is passing, I, I feel like I could have threaded that back mm-hmm. to, I mean, you know, her identity or lack of identity, you know, mm-hmm. threaded it back to the witch. Yeah. But I didn't quite know how. Again, this was these were things that just kind of got dropped. Loose, the, loose threads. Yeah, and 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 I felt like each one of them kind of needed its own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it needed its own exposition, and it never quite got it. Mm-hmm. So so live becomes tenured, right? So it's I mean that message is you know Liv gets tenured even after not having done any of the work right. uh, after having not been even as good as she should have been yep. doing the work that she did she got with the support of a black woman right the white woman walk kind of walks is allowed to just kind of walk through the door uh-huh. you know so there's another element of horror that they didn't kind of you know expose but when she walked in the party. When she right. walked in the party after she meets, you know, the creepy mom, she had on, that woman had on Kenta. I said out loud, I was watching it by myself. So right. nobody else was around, but I was like, that bitch got on Kente cloth. Right? Yeah. She had on Nancy, Nancy Pelosi. I was like, you are really taking this, the braids, <laughs> yeah. the, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little horrifying. Yeah. It but, reminded me of when, uh, like 
Nancy Pelosi and everyone in Congress were wearing it and doing. They're wearing the a kent- Oh, y'all! Oh, so embarrassing. Like it was. It was. Oh. But in this instance, yeah, it wasn't embarrassing because because okay, so th- th- okay, here's a way I thought it could have been. You know, I don't know how she could have done this, but what that character does is she puts on black skin. Like, like she takes like I have this uh-huh. really vivid I can't tell you which movies it's from right now but uh, well Silence of the Lambs can be one of them but um I have this really vivid um image in my head that this white woman went and found a black identity she found a she found a black woman and she mm-hmm. skinned her and that's this and she takes mm-hmm. that suit and that's the suit she wears right that, that's horror yeah right but yeah. um but it just didn't it just did i kept waiting on it to you know to kind of move forward and it and it just didn't so she had some missed opportunities but i think i do i say it again and i'll repeat it myself but i think it's because she doesn't have the experience in the um uh, in that the professional world mm-hmm. of higher education so that she could have made it like that. I think what she did with the student was, was, I think that was good. She pulled it off, but mm-hmm. if she had focused up, if the whole thing had been about, if the whole story in perspective had been about um, Jasmine, then I think it would have been a, a more broadly fleshed mm-hmm. out storytelling. You reminded me, have you seen, you've seen Lovecraft Country, right? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, there's that whole um, episode about the woman that works in the store with the skin and and shaying the skin. And that's what that reminded me Uh of. That was a very Mm -hmm. powerful, very Mm -hmm. powerful image there. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but, you know, in the academic environment, it's, it's kind of, you know, the theory that you know, free speech, and it's a space where you can have free speech and ideas, but it can also reinforce the patriarchy as class divisions. What do you feel about the current, what do you feel about that in general? And then in the current environment in higher education where, you know, certain guests or speakers, uh, you know, are either chased off the campus or not even allowed to speak there. What do you think about that? I know I'm opening a big, uh, can yeah, of worms you, here. Yeah, yeah, you are. General thoughts. Um, general yeah. thoughts. <laughs> okay, so, so, the more the more I've learned, like, the more I've learned, the more I have become of two minds about free speech, you know, and the tenets of free speech, as uh, as are laid out in the white purity model of politics in the United States and political culture in the United States, right? So theoretically, free speech is is an additive for a democratic society, right? Because what it does is it demonstrates that there is, that there are, that there are arenas of social engagement that place us all on equal footing, right? Theoretically, Mm -hmm. right? In practice and in reality, what free speech is, is it harms people from oppressed groups, 
right? It shields oppressors. It shields people who do damage because language and words mean something. They are the primary ways in which we transmit culture and meaning, right? Words are symbols. They have meaning. And so when you say to, and wait, one more thing, and words and language have power. They have power associated with them and the person who speaks them, right? So, so, in a free and democratic society, I think theoretically free speech could work, but we are not a free or democratic society, nor have we ever been. And so when we say free speech, when we holler free speech, what we are doing is we are protecting people who continue the process of oppression through language. Privileged they, they, <laughs> huh? Privileged speech. Right. It's privileged speech because... Uh, only certain people get to do it. So when when there is when so free expression free expression is free for white people. It's not free for anybody else, right? So when the Black Panthers were freely expressing themselves, mm -hmm. right, uh, they were the subject of a rampant, rabid, and omnipresent. Um, systems, a system of oppression or what, well, that system is, well, yeah, it was, a, it was an entire system, system of oppression by state actors, which led to the death, the murders by the state uh, of people who were stating ideas in the, you know, in the market of, of, um, they were stating their positions in the market of ideas, right? They, they were, were not allowed to, to do that. Yeah, they were a threat to exposing that hypocrisy, right? That central right. hypocrisy to our free speech. Right, right. And so, so, so what I would like is what I would like is free speech to actually be free. What I know is that that is not the case, nor has it ever been. And so, you know, when people say, oh, you know, well, it's it's free speech and, you know, uh, uh, people like what Jordan Peterson or J mm -hmm. J Ben Shapiro should be able to come to campus and spout their stuff. But then when you when you find um, an equally hateful speaker who is a person of color mm -hmm. or who is uh, a woman or who is, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, an, a member of one of the alphabet communities. Well, no, we can't have that. Then, mm -hmm. you know, there's always this tension that uh, that all it does is really demonstrate that we don't actually have free speech in this country. We mm -hmm. don't know, nor, ha nor have we ever. So until it's actually an equal balanced playing field, as far as people who are invited or people who are, I don't know, platformed? How, how would we say it? People that are elevated to the level of speaking in academic mm -hmm. environments and stuff like mm -hmm. that. This is maybe what we're witnessing is a bit of a pushback uh, or an attempt at a pushback through either canceling or, yeah, just, yeah, either canceling on, on the social media sense or canceling mm -hmm. speaking engagements. Right. Um, things like that. So we're probably witnessing. Yeah, I, I think I, I understand what you're saying. That seems to be 
I guess how I how I take it too is it's uh you know people do see it it is criticized as a bad thing for people mm-hmm. probably at from a privileged point of view who are who grew up in a academic environment years ago where they said oh yeah we had all all kinds of you know different opinions and views and and stuff but you know when really? you actually take a yeah when you actually take a step back right and see, okay, what, yeah, who were, what's the consistent through line of the people who are speaking? Um, have we actually ever had that? I think, I think you raised some really good points. Yeah, we have. And, you know, um, before all this talk of cancel culture, because that's just, you know, those are just, those are just buzzwords that designed right. to, um, to evoke um, outsized emotion in people. Uh, it, it, you know, people talk about so-called cancel culture, but none of the, uh, excuse my language here, but none of them motherfuckers got canceled, right? Like they keep talking. I mean, if you got canceled, then why the fuck won't you shut up, right? Right? Why yeah. do I keep seeing you everywhere? Why right. are you still all over Twitter? Why are you still making tens of thousands of dollars yeah. per speaking engagement, right? So that's not even real. So, yeah. so if we want to talk about, you know, well, you know, cancel culture won't allow me to speak, and yet here you are. You might even be getting more speaking engagements because right. of being canceled. And then the whole culture war right. situation comes right. into play. Right? And once again, that has to do with issues of power because Colin Kaepernick exercised his right to free speech. He lost his job. Yep. And he right? still hasn't the best gotten quarterback, The man with the best stats, the quarterback with the best stats mm. in the league, right? was not hired yeah right you know so because he and he didn't even say anything hateful right so so that this and so this is why i think it's really important that we watch what we say when we're talking about free speech and that we not by the cultural party line, right? The ideal, because free speech is the ideal. People who are already members of oppressed group, groups being punished for their speech is the real part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I am, I really am of two minds about it. I wish we did have actual free speech. I do, I wish we did, but we don't. Yeah, We don't, nor have we ever. Phew, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's heavy stuff, but I have to tell you, one of the reasons that I love popular culture and its study is because it's one of the few places where, you know, it's kind of hard to stop it, right? If somebody Mm -hmm. is saying something controversial in the pages of a comic book, people can say stuff about it and they can, you know, grouse and, you know, be uncomfortable and, you know, you know, uh, uh, put their shoulders up. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, there's always going to be an audience for comic books, right? Mm -hmm. There's an audience for comic books. And, and if someone is saying something controversial, there might be, you know, a push to stop publication, Mm -hmm. but more likely what's going to happen is that people are going to stampede towards it. They're going to read it and capitalism, right? Right. You know, the, 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 the drive for profit 
will put, will eventually put those messages out in the, the popular realm. Most people don't go to college, right? Mm-hmm. Only 30, 35% of the population goes to college and that's dwindling yeah. every year, yeah. right? Uh, and I understand why it's dwindling, right? But but a movie theater, please, yeah. please, right? You can you can message more people by creating a fantastic piece of film that's mainstream, right? Than you ever could by having me stand up and talk to people on a on a university campus. You, we need you know, to get you writing like, some scripts. Rhonda. Oh man, I wish. <laughs> I, I tell you, my daughter would actually be very go. good <laughs> at that. But yeah, I think, okay. yeah. I, and one of the things that 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 I really love about this film, even though I didn't think it was the best film, one of the things I love about it is that um, there are people in this film that we just generally haven't seen a whole lot, especially in horror right Mm -hmm. in in this genre we haven't seen a whole lot of black folks Mm -hmm. um you know we haven't seen a whole lot of discussions about these things i mean they've been there you know there's always lots of horror uh on uh, is set on college campuses because you know i mean it's kind of you know it's kind of a no-brainer right but um but these are black folks these are black women right and it's not just black women there are women this is a predominantly woman cast Mm -hmm. right and so so we're seeing these things break right yeah and the more people can you know we we all have little film cameras in our hands now (laughs) right and um we all you know not me well no i was but but i think people your age and younger than you raised more um, often on screens, yep. right? With screens, with fair on screens of all kinds. So that, so that, I mean, yeah, it's good if you can go to film school, but if you can't go to film school, bet you can study some really good television series and see how that's done and take what you do um, and take what they've done and apply it to your projects. So, I, so th- that's, part of, that's part of what was heartening to me about mm-hmm. this too. And you can tell one of the things I like about seeing some of the white actors in some of these um, um, some of these films is that you know you can tell they understand why they're there, right? right? They yeah. know why they're there, and they think it's the, and yes, they're getting paycheck, but they think it's important to be there, right? Sure. To tell this story, to to present this cultural message, and that is heartening to me. It really is for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, those are two great hopeful hopeful notes. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm obviously hopeful in the arts um mm-hmm. i think it's i mean hopefully we don't start censoring the arts at some point right uh <laughs> i don't think it's possible now yeah it's not yeah. possible it's the internet is too big yeah people have too much access to technology we are not yet like the totalitarian regimes of china and and uh russia uh, our our technology is not governed by the state yet, mm-hmm. uh, and Google is not going to let him let the, the United States government get its hands on it. It's mm-hmm. just not, you, it, you know. So so I think that there is always hope for um, for good media uh, in the United States, just because it's unstoppable. I just think it's unstoppable. 
but you know, and we all have to start somewhere. For and so sure. I, I feel like I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to shit on this film because uh, I understand it precisely what she was trying to do. I just, there are parts of it that I really wish had gone. Like when she pulls out the, 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 the mammy cookie jar, mm-hmm. thank God they don't show the whole thing. I was very relieved by that, but you know, those, th- that, those images are horror, right? But we yeah. just don't, you know, we just kind of sees it and she's, she's, um, you know, she's discomforted by it, but, yeah. but then that's kind of it. These are like, you know, and again, yeah, not to not to shit on the film, but a lot of these things are first feature filmmaker right. mistakes. It, what you're kind of describing is a lot of like kitchen sink uh, approach to the material. Uh-huh. It's kind of like, let's put every everything mm-hmm. we possibly can in here. My hope is that the next one will be like more focused. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, more of a razor's edge to it instead of, you know, not to use the sledgehammer approach, but a sledgehammer to hammer in the nail kind of a thing yeah yeah well she clearly has the chops to do it yeah and that was you know i was pleased by that because i was like okay well the next one's gonna there we go the next one's gonna be good for sure um one to watch for sure right yeah for sure yeah yeah i i'm i'm looking forward to it there's one okay in horror don't come along we know that they don't, you know, who helm these projects don't come along very often. So I'm glad to see her take a stab at it. Yeah, it's nice to nice to see some more for sure. There's mm-hmm. I have one last uh, thing to talk to you about, and this is kind of criticizing critics. OK, there's two uh, looking through the reviews of the film. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that always bugs me, like when someone writes off a film that happens to have, you know, like this film is classified as, uh, I believe it's like horror, mystery, and drama, like three mm-hmm. different genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, drama, horror, mystery. So horror isn't even listed first. But sometimes you'll see critics, this is a pet peeve of mine, <laughs> that will write off a film as it's not scary. And so mm-hmm. I don't like it which I think is a little dangerous and a little lazy uh, mm-hmm. as far as from a critical approach. Um, what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on uh, this is not scary? Don't watch it. It's not scary. <laughs> well, okay. So I, I have this thing about horror. I don't think it always has to be jump scare scary. I I just don't. I, I think that well, especially with this new wave of of horror, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the newer filmmakers, especially the newer filmmakers of color, are are taking what other people might think of as the mundane and and placing it in front of the camera as as horror. So it's tense. It's always tense. You always know, you're always expecting something to happen. And for me, you know, as a black woman, then then this is the state of being. And that is, it is, what is more scary than, you know, getting involved in your work at your office, right? Looking up, realizing you know, it's friggin' midnight and nobody else is in the building. You're in the building by yourself okay. and your car is parked two parking lots away, right? 
the the you know any woman who is listening to me right now her stomach tightened up immediately just thinking about that because oh shit i gotta get out of the building and how am i going to protect myself Mm -hmm. and do i need to call the police well hell the police are you know shit can i trust the police to Mm -hmm. you know so you know the 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 specter of assault the physical assault on women is a horror Mm -hmm. and it is a horror that lives with us every minute of the day even when we are in our homes by ourselves right you're always locking your door to make sure nobody can get in there and get you you know you you're always making sure that your windows your your curtains maybe if you're there by yourself that maybe all your curtains aren't quite open so people can't look in there and see that you're by yourself that is a horror and the fact that people are taking these things that we think of as everyday and mundane and saying, no, that is horror and putting it on the screen as expression of that is, is just amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And so when people say, well, you know, it's not scary, it's not scary to you, mm-hmm. right? Because you white man who wrote this critique have never had to experience the kinds of things that we are seeing in this film as horror. But there are large swaths of our population for whom this is horrible, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's real uh, or the prospect of it is real. And so one of the, the, see, and this is one of the reasons I only have, I, I will only listen to specific there are only a very few critics that I take seriously mm-hmm. because those people are the people who get it. They are, I don't know whether they're sociologists by training or not, but that's the way that they do their critiques of films. Mm-hmm. I listen to them more only, and there's only a handful of them. I listen to them and then all other critiques I just, I just put to the side. Yeah. Because what I want to know about a film is how it hits as a film but as also a deliverer of cultural messaging. That's what I want to know. And if people don't have that, then I just kind of like, well, okay, well then you're not writing for me. You're writing Mm -hmm. for somebody else. And so that's kind of how I feel about it. I don't think everything has to be a jump scare. Yeah. 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 I'm curious, how long is your list? Is it it growing? Your list of person. The person at the top of the list is Bob Mondello. Always. Like I've been listening to that man for years. You know, it was, you know, before he died, it was Roger Ebert because I thought that he um, had a really good, you know, kind of an all encompassing take about uh, film and even films he didn't like when he could tell you what he liked about them. They always had some sort of, you know, sociological analytical element to them. And I really appreciate that. So those are my my top two. Um, There's a guy in the Atlantic. Well, no, it's not a guy. It's a woman. Can't remember her name, but who writes for the Atlantic, whose work, you know, I pay a lot of attention to. But I don't you not not many people aside from that. It's tough. Yeah, it's really tough because how many uh, how deep can you go on a film when you're limited to 240 characters? Right. Right. A lot of it is just like hot takes on on Twitter Mm -hmm. and stuff that that is essentially the, you know, the clickbait kind of critique. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. not a thoughtful. um, And really, a lot of these films deserve a lot of art deserves more than a sentence or two. Right. I agree. I agree. Um, which is, but, and I'm willing to read the the work of, of thoughtful critics. 
Agreed. So, but but part of part of what I'd also like to see too is a diversification of um, you know work in film and television critique. I really would like to see that because you know those things are becoming more and more diversified, and there's so much of it that of course we're going to start seeing more diverse properties that are just shit. Mm-hmm, right. Sure. <laughs> um, and and it's good. And, and we need to be able to have people who are able to critique those things and say, yes, it addresses um, uh, Latino life in New York City. Yes, it does this. Yes, it does that. But it's still shitty. Right. So right. why don't you spend your time over here with this other <laughs> franchise yeah. that actually does those things better? That's kind of um, like awarding the uh, the live the live character in the film, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. We all we need more divo- we need more diverse voices. We need to recontextualize the mundane, like you were talking about, because mm-hmm. you know, yeah, seeing everything just through your lens. Well, there's a much bigger audience than just your segment of the population that you know that you relate yeah. to, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the importance of having more stories and more voices and more opportunities, that's, that's going to make the storytelling uh, overall more representative and just better period. Right. Well, and, and the, it's going to make the ways in which we receive it um, much more accurate. Like um, the, I remember when Brokeback Mountain came out, you know, and I was all excited about it. I hadn't read the short story yet. And so uh, I went to go see it and I'm sitting in the, the, like the whole film. I was like, Wow, this is not a is this supposed to be a love story what the heck i mean it was just, i was like oh my god this is not what people awkward. told me it was really and then <laughs> um and then later uh i read i don't remember who it was but i read um a critique of it by um uh, a man who was gay mm-hmm. and he he wrote everything that I thought, right? He was like, I don't know why y'all, this is, he said it much, much more eloquently than this, but he was like, I don't know why everybody's calling this a romance. Because right. I was like, this is two and a half hours of relentless sadness and people giving up. I mean, you know, giving up something important yeah. and denying themselves and hiding. And I was like, ah, Rep- right? Repression, but, a two, hour, right? two hours oh of my repression. God, right, but, but, <laughs> All of the kind of mainstream read white male heterosexual critique of the movie before it came out talked about it being this beautiful thing and blah blah blah. And I'm like, the only thing beautiful about this was the scenery and the people are beautiful, but that what were you talking about was beautiful about this? Well, it was not critiqued with the eye that it should have been critiqued. Like like people were acting like this was a film. Well, it was a it was a film for the straight gays, right? And then um, G A Z E. Um, but then <laughs> yes. you know, but then a gay man wrote a, a critique about it from his perspective, and I was like, oh, thank God, right? You know, but but so that's I so I, th- I think that's the importance of diversifying, mm-hmm. um, you know, the industry, if you will, of um, um, you know, critics. Right. Yeah. That that needs to be diversified and expanded, sure. too. And just, and you were getting to the point, too, of just more authentic stories, right? From yeah. casting, from writing, directing all of all the way on down. And then we can have more authentic experiences and perspectives in the critical circle, which, you know, mm-hmm. could be interesting if we have um, 
you know, some well-written reviews from different perspectives to see how everybody's kind of taking a Mm -hmm. individual film. Mm -hmm. There's one more that I want to ask you if, if this is worrying to you or, or not something to be worried about. There's a a critic that I like in the UK. His name is Mark Kermode. Um, And you know, when uh, you know, you have, filmmakers of a level in a history of experience where you can call a film like Lynchian or Terrence Malickian or Kubrickian Uh or something like that. Um, His review of, of this film, he said it's more than a little, it has more than a little Jordan Peele in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder to me, you know, Jordan Peele is so early in his filmmaking career. Mm -hmm. Um, is it worrying that any black filmmaker that makes a socially conscious horror film is going to be called Jordan Peele or related to Jordan Peele? Like, are we so early in kind of this, you know, these new voices, is that limiting to a director like the the woman that made this film to not be writing kind of her own history and creating her own filmography, but we're already putting her in a shadow of, you know, the first black filmmaker that made a socially conscious film in recent times. So I think it would be a problem if this didn't look like Jordan Peele's work. (laughs) Okay. It does. It does. (laughs) But, but she is a, she is a young filmmaker and in her life, what other black director is doing horror, right? It's him. Right. And so, well, of course, you know, we all have we all have um, we, we all have uh, the work, the foundational work of people in our fields that when we first start, we use as our own foundation. Right. Until we learn more, until we get more experience, until we start, you know, finding out about the work of other folks who pique our interest and then our work becomes more Um, fully fleshed out. Now, if it were 10 years from now, and this woman has clearly found her own voice, and her stuff is nothing like Jordan Peele's, and somebody was still saying that, then I would be, then, then my, my, my concern would be, okay, so are you just saying that all black horror directors do work like Jordan Peele? This film is 10 years past her first film, and it looks completely different. So what are you talking about? Right? Um, My reaction was like, well, what about like Nia DaCosta? And, you know, like there's other filmmakers than Jordan Peele that are. Right. But this looks like Jordan Peele. Understood. It it does. It it, it absolutely does. And Jordan Peele has a story, right? He's got a he's man. His story, his visual story is is just all over everything he did. I knew when I saw the the trailer for Nope, I knew it was him. (laughs) Yeah. I knew, not just because it was Daniel Kaluuya, right? Yeah, yeah. But the way that it looks, it well, even though you know most of his stuff is not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily well. No, that's not true. Get Out was rural too, but I could just see it. It was kind of just, it was just its name was stamped all over it. You know, I could just see it. Yeah. Um, they probably so wisely be, put it in the marketing. Like if you're releasing yeah. Master from a marketing point of view, like I can understand that. I guess. All right, so maybe I'm pushing the panic button way too soon. I yeah, hope that this is so. just a all right. Got it. Yeah, I, I think so. Like, like we should we should come back after her next film, 
right. and and talk about it because if if we see it then okay then we're seeing a pattern that is not based in the work that she's doing rather it's based in you know somebody's kind of general sense of what black people do when they make horror but uh but it does it looks it it's very similar in in look to some of the shots look like shots from um from some of his movies and so this, well, this is I don't, why I, don't... I like mark kermode he's a good critic and a good writer yeah. so uh all right then he's yeah. he's recognizing what you're recognizing that yeah. this feels like an influence yeah oh yeah absolutely <laughs> okay. and of course it would be an influence i would be i would be a little concerned if it wasn't an influence for her you know yeah um okay yeah. <laughs> it's all good. See, you. I knew you would You would correct me for sure. <laughs> Was there any last comments that you have on um, on Master? Um, I mean, I, I guess we can kind of preview, even though we don't have all the details yet, that Rhonda is, uh, Dr. Matthews is doing a new monthly series mm -hmm. uh, through the Eerie Horror Fest. It's going to be called Eerie Horror Fest Presents. Um and we're still working out the details, but it's going to be exciting and you should all stay tuned to that for sure. Absolutely. Anything else, Rhonda, I, other than I'm going to try and convince you and or your daughter to write some scripts so that we can <laughs> more, more films out there. Listen, I think we could do it. I think we could do it. She, she was raised on TV. My spouse and I loved it. We are not those people. You know how there are people who are like, I don't, I don't have a television in my home. That's right. Please. <laughs> what? <I> don't <laughs> How do you live? You don't have TV. You don't <laughs> yeah. have. I mean, I just I'm not a snob about it. I just, you know, it it is part of what we do. I'm, I get excited about these things. But yeah, if you can uh, if you can point me to a to a script writing course. <laughs> 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 okay i teach i teach teen script writing i don't know maybe maybe do you really we can do a crash course sometime yeah <laughs> cool well Rhonda, thank you so much for your time um let's see if another film uh comes comes across the radar we want to do another one of these with all right thank you for asking i really appreciate it i've enjoyed it Cinema Activist is produced by Lion's Den Productions. Hosted by John C. Lyons. Music by Tony Gray. Support the efforts of Lion's Den Productions by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Lion's Den Productions. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye.